Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 19th. In today's news, Bill Barr threatens to quit if the president doesn't stop tweeting about his department. All the Democrats sound eager to pile on Mike Bloomberg in tonight's debate. And China expels three reporters because of a coronavirus op-ed they didn't write. But first, the big idea. During his Senate impeachment trial, Democrats repeatedly asserted that President Trump is not above the law. But since his acquittal two weeks ago, the president has taken a series of steps aimed at showing that, essentially, he is the law. Trump granted clemency yesterday to a clutch of political allies circumventing the usual Justice Department process. The pardons and commutations followed Trump's moves to punish witnesses in his impeachment trial to publicly intervene in a pending legal case to urge leniency for a friend, to attack a federal judge, to accuse a juror of bias, and to threaten to sue his own government for investigating him. Speaking to reporters yesterday afternoon, the president explained that he's, quote, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. Trump used his sweeping presidential pardon powers to forgive the crimes of a list of bold-faced names, including disgraced politician Rod Blagojevich, convicted junk bond king Michael Milken, and former New York police commissioner Bernie Carrick. Trump pardoned or commuted the sentences of seven convicted white-collar criminals at the center of federal anti-corruption and tax fraud cases spanning decades, alongside four women whose cases were not as well known. The action freed Blagojevich, the former Democratic governor of Illinois, from a federal correctional facility in Colorado where he was midway through a 14-year sentence. He arrived back home in the wee hours of this morning in Chicago. He was convicted on corruption charges in 2011 for trying on a wiretap to sell Barack Obama's vacated Senate seat. He also tried to shake down the owner of a hospital, among other crimes. The pardons and commutations focus on the type of corruption and lying charges that Trump's associates were convicted of as part of the Russia investigation, once again raising the question of whether Trump will pardon former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, and longtime advisor Roger Stone. The actions announced yesterday fit with a pattern of highly personal presidential justice that bypasses the traditional pardon process administered by the Justice Department. Most of the people who received clemency under Trump, not just yesterday but generally, have been well-connected offenders who had a line into the White House or currency with his political base or a platform on Fox News. For example, with Milken's pardon, the White House literally put out a list of advocates for the wealthy financier who asked Trump to help him out. On the list, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, political donors Miriam and Sheldon Adelson, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Milken became a symbol of the culture of greed during the 1980s. He was literally the inspiration for Michael Douglas's character Gordon Gecko, who said greed is good in the movie Wall Street. Milken pleaded guilty in 1990 as part of a plea deal to six felony counts, including securities fraud, mail fraud, and aiding in the filing of a false tax return. Nelson Peltz, 
who threw the president a $10 million fundraiser this past Saturday night at his $95 million Palm Beach, Florida home, also strongly pressed the president to pardon Milken. The White House also cited TV personalities, including Geraldo Rivera, Andrew Napolitano, and Maria Bartiromo as pardon advocates. Also on Trump's pardon list were Carrick, convicted of tax fraud, and Edward DeBartolo, the billionaire former owner of the San Francisco 49ers, who pleaded guilty two decades ago to charges stemming from his role in a bribery case related to casinos in Louisiana. The president also pardoned David Safavian, a senior official in the George W. Bush administration who was convicted of obstructing a federal investigation as part of the scandal surrounding lobbyist Jack Abramoff and two lesser-known business executives, technology executive Ariel Friedler and construction company executive Paul Pogue. Both were convicted of computer and tax charges. He also pardoned Angela Stanton, an author who served a six-month home sentence for her role in a stolen vehicle ring. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who advises the president, also takes on legal clients, including Friedler, which is how he apparently got that pardon. The head of the Justice Department's pardon office during the first two years of the Trump administration told my colleague Beth Reinhardt recently that he quit last year because the White House sidelined his office in favor of taking its cues from celebrities, political allies, and Fox hosts. For example, Friedler, that Christie client, never even applied to the pardon office, according to Justice Department records. Carrick is a frequent visitor to the president's club at Mar-a-Lago. He recently posted a picture of himself at the Trump Hotel in D.C. tagging the president. Safavian works at the Trump-aligned American Conservative Union, which puts on the CPAC conference, and he routinely attacks Trump's critics on Twitter. Blagojevich's wife lobbied for her husband's release repeatedly on Fox News. Blagojevich and Trump were also well acquainted from when the former governor was a contestant on Trump's show, The Apprentice, in 2010. The entire GOP delegation from Illinois lobbied the president hard against commuting Blagojevich's sentence. Trump made phone calls to the Republicans last week to argue that his sentence was unjust, but the lawmakers were not convinced, and they tried to remind the president of just how corrupt the former governor was. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, three administration officials tell us that Attorney General Bill Barr has told people close to the president, inside and outside the White House, that he is considering quitting over Trump's tweets about Justice Department investigations. So far, Trump has defied Barr's requests, both public and private, to keep quiet on matters of federal law enforcement. It wasn't immediately clear last night whether Barr made his posture known directly to the president. The administration officials said Barr seemed to be sharing his position with advisors in hopes the president would get the message that he should stop weighing in publicly on the DOJ's ongoing criminal probes. One person familiar with Barr's thinking says, quote, he has his limits. The standoff between Trump and Barr intensified yesterday when Trump declared in a string of early morning tweets that he might sue the government and those involved in former special counsel Bob Mueller's investigation into his 2016 campaign. Trump also suggested that Stone, his friend, convicted of lying to Congress in that probe, deserves a new trial. Hours later, a Justice Department official said prosecutors had filed a sealed motion in court 
arguing the exact opposite. And they said that they had Barr's personal approval to do so. Barr had a previously scheduled lunch with the White House counsel yesterday and was still the attorney general by day's end, indicating that the president's moves were not enough to push him to resign. But he and his Justice Department seemed to remain mired in a political crisis with an uncertain future. A Justice Department spokeswoman initially declined to comment. After the Post reported this online last night, Carrie Kupek, the spokeswoman for Barr, said on Twitter that the AG has no plans to resign. She didn't address what Barr has told others. Number two. A new Washington Post-ABC News poll out this morning shows Bernie Sanders opening a significant national lead among Democrats, getting 32%. Joe Biden trails with 16%, followed by Mike Bloomberg at 14% and Elizabeth Warren at 12%. The remaining candidates, including Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, didn't get into the double digits. When Bloomberg steps onto the debate stage tonight in Las Vegas for his first hostile and uncontrolled campaign test, there will be no management decisions to make, no teleprompters to lean on, and no endless ad budgets to filter his message with focus group talking points. In debate prep sessions, advisors have armed Bloomberg with comebacks for the inevitable attacks on his enormous wealth and past record, while also coaching him to move beyond his sometimes distant, wonky, and diffident public persona. Wary of Bloomberg's rise in the polls, his rivals, with far more debate experience and Democratic longevity, have made clear they will not go easy on the newcomer. Sanders denounced Bloomberg in Reno last night, calling the former mayor of New York, quote, an oligarch, not a Democrat. Biden has been boasting for days about his desire to confront Bloomberg in person because he can't compete with the billionaire's advertising budget. And Warren, Elizabeth Warren, tweeted that Bloomberg's defenses of stop and frisk until he apologized shortly before getting into the race were, quote, racist. She added that with her hits on Bloomberg tonight, she's going to give a live demonstration of how she'll take on another egomaniac billionaire in Donald Trump. For his part, Sanders yesterday said he will not release any more medical records, despite having a heart attack just a few months ago. Expect the Vermont senator to get pressed on that tonight. The debate is at 9 p.m. Eastern on NBC and MSNBC. Meanwhile, Amy Klobuchar is scrambling to turn her moment into something more. Her staffers spent hours over the weekend trying to hash out a strategy for Super Tuesday, debating whether it makes more sense to compete in big delegate-rich states like Texas and California or more independent-minded states that aren't overly liberal like Maine and Tennessee, but which have fewer delegates. Klobuchar's home state of Minnesota is one of the places that votes on Super Tuesday. She's been adding staff there. She battles with Judge and Warren for the white college-educated voters who fuel all three of their campaigns. As one advisor put it, quote, we're putting the airplane together as we fly it. And Buttigieg hit back last night during a CNN town hall at Rush Limbaugh's latest round of homophobic attacks. Buttigieg offered some of his most fiery responses yet to the radio talk show host's assertion that Trump told him not to apologize for saying that Americans would never elect, quote, a gay guy kissing his husband on the debate stage. Limbaugh, whom Trump recently awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, doubled down on those comments and told listeners that the president called him and encouraged him to stay the course and not back down. Buttigieg said he's not going to let Limbaugh or Trump lecture him on family values, explaining that one thing about his marriage to Chastin is it's never involved him having to send hush money to a porn star after cheating on his pregnant spouse. 
Number three, more than 2,000 people have died now from the coronavirus in China, but the national government is expressing growing optimism. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is striking an increasingly confident tone that his country can control the outbreak and manage the economic and social fallout, as some Chinese health experts predict a peak in infections by the end of this month. Chinese leaders are eager to kickstart economic activity, so they've dismantled some highway checkpoints and businesses have begun to reopen. But there are still a lot of restrictions on personal mobility. While China claims that new case numbers are continuing to decline, international experts, including RCDC, say they're wary of declaring that the pace of worldwide infections is actually slowing. After all, just yesterday, if you take China at its word, they tallied a total of 1,800 new cases and 136 more deaths. And while you were sleeping, the Chinese government expelled three Wall Street Journal reporters, citing a recent column in the op-ed page by an academic. The deputy bureau chief and a reporter, both American citizens, as well as an Australian national who's also a reporter, have been ordered to leave the country within five days. The foreign ministry has been repeatedly criticizing the journal since it published a coronavirus-related op-ed by Walter Russell Mead, a professor at Bard College, under the headline, China is the real sick man of Asia. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 19th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great day. I'll talk to you tomorrow.